RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Supplemental Edition, in conversation with Robert Butler from San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, all you Star Trek fans, you history fans, and yes, you Trekophiles spelled with an F, to a bit of history, our very first supplemental edition for The Trek Files. Now, it's not our typical format, nor the length. It's a bit longer. And we're not even starting with a Trek file, per se. But I think you'll forgive us if we share my Trekland Live presentation from San Diego Comic-Con. See, during Star Trek's big 5-0 celebration in 2016, I was delighted to have as my very first Portal 47 anniversary open house guest, live and online, two-time Emmy-winning director Robert Butler, the guy who called action on the very first Star Trek that ever went before a camera with The Cage. And nearly two years earlier than our traditional 1966 birthday, right? Now, you Trekophiles ought to know The Cage was the very first Star Trek pilot, the roots of so much that came later. But with Jeffrey Hunter playing Captain Pike in the lead. The very same Captain Pike that Anson Mount won raves for playing when the character was brought to Discovery Season 2, along with even Number 1 and Young Lieutenant Spock. So with all that renewed hoopla over Pike and Telosians, and being the 55th anniversary of the actual filming of The Cage, and if it's fuzzy, go back and find our Season 3, Episode 14, about The Cage, with the iconic Dorothy Fontana as guest. Well, all of that is why I was doubly delighted to have my Trekland Live banner present Bob live, before a max full house audience at San Diego Comic-Con 2019. Now, Bob is 91 here, and along with Yeoman Colt Laurel Goodwin and Sandy Gimple's third Telosian, he's about the last of the creative team from the cage that we still have with us. But he kept the room spellbound with his convictions and his clarity, and you can tell how tickled he was to be there, with not an empty seat in the room and dozens turned away. Well, now you and all those who didn't get in the door can hear the history. Mr. Robert Butler, everyone. What do I need to say? So just so you know, and just so, I mean, I have the cage up here. That's what we're all here for, I'm sure. But just so you know, this man has two Emmys to his credit, okay? Uh, Nothing to do with Star Trek. He was involved with Playhouse 90, directed on Playhouse 90. Uh, This is a feature film, The Barefoot Contessa. This is some of his, did feature films, did television, was very well known on television, as you might think, for pilots, okay? He did that, well, he worked on, this is a color picture we had. So everything from later days, uh, Superman, I mean, um, Smallville. This gentleman directed the pilot for Batman. Am I going to get it? 
There we go. Yes. And a couple more shots there. Hard at work. Distinguished Service Award from uh, the writers, from the Directors Guild of America there. Uh, also, I don't have pictures, but you have two Emmys. The two Emmys he won were also for pilots. And, of course, a pilot sets the tone for a series, right? You have a creator. It's their vision. Hopefully, they're still involved by the time it becomes a pilot, right? But... Um, that first DP, that first director on a pilot can make or break a show, especially if it's having to be actually be sold. And this gentleman won his two Emmys for doing the pilots for a great uh, uh, police show called The Blue Knight. William Holden? Yes. Yes, William Holden came to TV with The Blue Knight. And he also did the pilot for a little show that may have shaken up TV a little bit called Hill Street Blues. <laughs> And all of those could be their panels on themselves, unto themselves. But we're here for the cage. Bob, thank you very much for being here with us again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Full house, full house, full house. <laughs> <laughs> and some and SRO if we could have had it. Right. I feel bad for the folks who are outside. Well, we're here about Star Trek. So you had a good, you were young in your career. Your career at the time of the cage in 64. How did you come to, what did you done, what got you on the radar for Gene and what, Herb Solo? Who, who actually hired you? Gene hired me. Uh, I had met him on a, a previous show of his called the, the, the Lieutenant. It was a Marine Corps show. I assumed Gene was a Marine, but I don't know that for sure. He was a cop. He was a policeman. And he told a great story on himself about how he drew a gun at one point and ripped the tie in front of his shirt. <laughs> so he, he had a gun and a bunch of cotton hanging down from his... Good guy, good guy to work with, good guy to work for. Uh, a little greener in his job than I was in mine at that point. So I won a few arguments that we'll talk about maybe. But uh, that's key, by the way. Directorially, if you win all the arguments... The picture's a little bit better than it would have been. <laughs> you might be a little biased on that opinion. Completely, but. and I'm thrilled that the word director and my name were, were on the publicity, and the, the, you fill the house in part for directors and moi, not to mention Star Trek, of course. Right, right. Well, people are, we're, we have savvy fans in Star Trek, and people, especially after all, after all this time. So, Gene, hi. Um, did you what? Uh, did you have any trepidations about? Had you done a science fiction? What was your relationship to science fiction in general? And I was I was green to science fiction. I didn't know much about it, and as I read the script for the first time, it seemed to me in part as a grocery list of what happens in good science fiction. And I didn't put that down. I just noted it, and. Uh, did my preparation as I always did, except a little less so because the greener a director is, the, the, the less he knows that you must check every comma and every period and every adjective and every everything in the script that you have to work with. I didn't do that. Incidentally, from the production standpoint, I'm rambling here. So uh, no, you if I hear any boos, I'll change the subject. <laughs> uh, an unwritten rule, an unknown rule in budget production, which is what early television was certainly, is if you can keep the director out of the meetings, he'll spend less of your money. 
the director is costly, so be careful of him and keep him in the dark and away as much as you can. That's the truth of Hollywood television then and the truth of film now, truly, but that's a secret, so that, that can stay in this room. Well, money was very key to Star Trek. It still is. It always has been. Science fiction is expensive, especially in the 60s when you're pioneering and inventing some of these aspects and things that had not been... <laughs> you truly went where the industry had not gone before on a lot of things, opticals and that. And, and you had worked with Gene before, but they, the little Desilu studio was very nervous when you came in. Now, let's, there's a whole process here, not just directing the cage on screen, but post, but also up front, there's casting. So um, uh, I've, I've got a jumble of pictures in here. I'm going to uh, skip over this to come back to... Um, um, let's talk about casting for a minute. Now, you were in. They were worried about money. We'll talk about that, too. But uh, did you have a hand in any of the casting of... Uh, Jeffrey Hunter for Pike, or this is uh, uh, John Hoyt here for... Uh, I think not. On Jeffrey Hunter, I think not. Again, uh, I might have been the first choice uh, by Gene because of our working together before, but I might not have. In any case, certain production elements had to, had to have been begun before I arrived. Some of the building of the sets, some of the casting. I don't remember casting Jeffrey Hunter. I don't remember casting our leading, our leading lady, Susan Oliver. I must have been in on it because I remember her performance and her behavior and her personality very well. So, yes and no. Some of the casting, yes. Some of it, not at all. I, I do remember you said uh, you were a, a guest on my Portal 47 uh, and I, you said you did have something to do with the casting of Peter, uh, the ill-fated in the show, um, uh, Peter Durier? Durier? Yes. Yes, Peter Durier. Dan Durier was his dad. And yes. And I didn't know the ill-fated part of it. I well, his character, he's fine. Or he was fine. <laughs> his character, Lee, Lee Kelso. I, oh, I'm sorry. No, Tyler. I'm thinking pilots. Jose Tyler, his character... Uh, I'm switching pilots. I'm going to shut up. His character did just fine. But you had a hand in casting that for sure, you, you mentioned. I, I remember Peter Drouillet vividly. He had a good attack, a lot of honesty, freshness, force. Uh, a favorite, a favorite, a good guy, a good actor. Uh, he left the business for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Now, this is something, and you all just shared this. I'm going to zip back. Sorry, guys. Uh, this is your, I had not seen this until last night. This is your daybook calendar <laughs> for November and December of 1964 when you were shooting. I like how it's just, uh, you've just got your hours, 11 hours trek, 11 hours trek. It's just your workbook. What, what kind of, that's, that does not tell the story, obviously. You were brought in, a director's hired later in, but still early on you were part of casting. Um, were there any decisions up in the air that you had to, like, sets or how something might be done, even if it wasn't mainly the director's? Because uh, director's on pilots, as we know. Yeah, control everything, hopefully. Because <laughs> what? Because everyone else is running around, they're so nervous or paranoid or, or they're arguing or you're a clear head in the, in the room? Supposedly clear head. Okay. Um, the question was... Do you, do, what did you, in your short time to prep... 
did you get to exercise some authority over him uh, as you were coming into the shoot? No. You passed muster because they were worried about spending money on this, and Desi Lu as a little studio didn't want to go broke on Lucy's projects, I know. The only thing I can really point to is rehearsal, dry rehearsal before photography began. I always insisted on that, and since a lot of the devices were unknown to me or were and or were already in opera being built, why... Uh, I don't really have a big recollection of a contribution. I tried. I lost an argument. I tried to change the title. Star Trek, Trek, Trek seems heavy and dreary and deadly and inevitable. Why not Star Trek, Star Trek? You see the lines. You see the star fields. You see the geology and geography. Star Trek. I tried to convince Gene of that. Not only was he against it, he didn't even hear me. He, it was just, and Star, Star Trek ain't a bad title, as it turns out. <laughs> According to the likes of all you. So maybe that's proof that your director in this instance, your brilliant director in this instance, was wrong. He was wrong. But I, I did lose that argument. I had a very good rehearsal, rehearsal period of three or four days. And he, Gene, and or the material, and or the cast, taught me a lesson I used always. Here's the story. Howard Hawks, the great director, produced a picture called The Thin, The Thing at about that time. His film editor directed it, and it was a kind of a, a snob hit. Very good actors, no big stars, and it was all kind of done down here because The Thing could be right on the other side of the wall. All of it was... Well, wasn't, but a lot of it was at that pitch. And I thought, hey, that's less ostentatious. Yes. Ostentatious? Less phony? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it that way. So we rehearsed doggedly for a couple, three days that way. At the, at the end of which time I woke, woke one night at midnight fearing that it was dull. Just plain dull. Not, not insightful, not special, not different, just dull. So what do I do? Do I continue this pattern? Do I leave the business now or, or wait to get fired? I really didn't quite know what to do except on the way into the rehearsal the next day. And I walked in and I just said, guys, I've got an announcement about something I was wrong about. We've been playing it down here. I think it's dull. It's just plain dull. And I figured the, the lynching party would enter at that point. And they listened, and I explained that the usual exclamation points, the usual force, the usual apprehension, the, the, the usual suspense would be applicable. And to put back the exclamation points and the fear and the dread and the heroism and whatever. And they said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I turned them around 180 degrees, admitted to a big failure. They weren't impressed. And, and that just taught me to tell them the truth. It, it's a more direct communication. You get better results. And the more they can figure out themselves, the actors, the better the performance, the more real, the more seemingly organic and 
unbelievable. Your straight talk and your honesty, you either would have been a godsend to politics or you would have, good thing you went into directing. That's what I'm <laughs> um, talking about rehearsal. So here's Susan Oliver. Let's talk a little bit about her. Because uh, she was like all over TV and films, but she was blackballed because she stood up, I think, Louis, uh, uh, Jack Warner on a movie. But that's why she wound up doing so much TV and she was so good. What's your memory of working with her? See, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that she had trouble. I, I knew that she got interested in directing and did some of it before her early death from cancer. Yeah, Me Too glass ceiling when she tried to direct in the 70s. Yeah, but, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But, uh, as, as an actress, as a performer, as a co-worker, she was terrific. There was a, there was a secret question mark in my mind about her performance. Um, I assume I have figured out since that she was playing a spy. That's who she was. That's what, that's what she was. We were told in the script that she was raised among men, which is older men, which was, which was why she talks so intellectually and tells so much to, to Jeffrey. Um, I was aware of that at the time, but I didn't quite know... I didn't quite face the fact or know the fact to this degree that she was playing a spy. So how do you play a spy? Do you play vampy? Do you play sweet and innocent? Which is what she seemed to do. In any case, I was confused about that. She was convincing. She was believable. But there was a little bell ringing in the back of my head all the time. Not because of her, but because of me. That's my major memory of her, not being able to solve that little problem. Uh, practically, she's a very good performer. She went with, with, with a friend of mine uh, who worked at TV City, CBS on Beverly and Fairfax also, and worked on many of the shows there. And so I knew her as a good working young lady. Uh, good lady, good actress. Confused a director secretly, don't tell a soul, but uh, a, a good experience, all in all, a terrific experience. Now, the, the Orion slave girl, the green girl, has gotten so many sidebar stories, everything from the makeup tests that Majel did to just filming this. What Do you have a memory about either your prep or the day of shooting this? Yes, I remember Gene, <laughs> I remember Gene wanted... Reaction shots of some of the musicians in the band. I, I don't even remember it. I think the musicians were kind of like the bar in Star Wars. Weird, weird freaks playing weird instruments. Now, again, he might have been right because of weird freaks playing weird instruments. But I was hurrying behind schedule probably, and I said to him, what are we going to do with those shots? Where are we going to put them? And I kind of forced the win on that argument. But that's very clear in my memory. Um, I thought, too, that, 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 that at that point in Gene's professional life, he was greener than I, than I because, let's face it, the green girl is great, but around the eyes comes the transition from green girl to human being actress. How do you do that? What do you do? Do you... Do you somehow figure out there's something I'm confused by it because it's bogus and unfinished 
I do remember those thoughts. Uh, I, rem- I remember kind of the inevitability of a of a naughty lady dancing naughty, dancing a naughty number in a naughty nightclub with with horny uh, uh, horny individuals leering from all sides. I mean, are we really going to do that again? But but uh, but incidentally, insert. A little disdain is great. If you're, if you're blindly in love, as the gentleman in the audience will, will concur, you're lost, you're gone, you've lost your perspective, it's deadly. If you have a little superiority, a little disdain, a little doubt, you're better off, your perspective retains. So in that context, my perspective was at work, and maybe Gene was righter than I was. Uh, let's don't forget that because we're all here. Fifty-five years later, I was eleven at the time I directed the pilot. <laughs> anyway, green lady questionable, horny bar usual. Choreography. Susan was an okay dancer, but she wasn't a great dancer. Choreography and dancing ability okay. It was kind of a, an okay sequence, except for her. She's still playing the spy. She's still playing the mystery woman. So there's a duality in her part. She obviously really feels something for Jeff, but she's been assigned by the Laotians. To Tal- Talosians. Talosians, Laotians. <laughs> That's an innocent, an innocent mistake. Yeah, by the by, the villains. Enough. I've answered the question. Yeah, yeah. Thank, well, thank God we can move on. That's well, that's indicative of a bigger issue. So we've got the money here. So where are you? Where are you in this time as the director? So you're trying to sell us TV series, right? That's your. Hopefully, you'll do that for them, and you've got a track record starting starting up. Although this is two years before Batman, right? Had you done a pilot before? Well, was it the lieutenant's pilot, or was it one of the episodes? Episodes, two of the episodes. Okay. So you're having to just earn your paycheck and your rep to hopefully help them sell the show. But on top of that, you're walking into the triangle of tension here between NBC and the studio and Gene and Herb Solo and the crew about spending money, about the content, about are we really making this crazy space show for this guy that has no track record aside from his little marine <laughs> I mean, did you get caught up in the dynamic of that, or were you able to just do your prep and do Absolutely that? not. <laughs> not. True or untrue, I'm above all of that. That doesn't have, any, that doesn't have anything to, to do with me. What I'm doing is taking the words, the performance, the mounting of the presentation, and trying to be as straight and clear and effective with you as I possibly can be. That's my job. The, the legal department, the president of the studio, selling color television sets, maybe on the QT convincing the cinematographer to be a little overly vivid. Don't know that that's true? Just wonder. Uh, no, no, I don't care about that stuff. That's a naive position. It's an impractical position. The giants in the industry do it all, man. They create, they write, they 
really conduct the whole of their project of their jobs. I, at my level at that time, did the same thing. I worried about you and them and not them. Not them. They don't have anything to do with me. Untrue, but that's a good point of view. Right. <laughs> For me to get to you the clearest, simplest, most effective, direct storyline I can possibly get. Well, I know that's your goal. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I know that's your goal, but sometimes the outside world doesn't listen to what we're trying to do, and you get sucked into things. And even even over money, was there ever a? Because it did go over budget, but that wasn't. Did anyone blame you for going over budget? Was it just we under budgeted, or there are things we couldn't? I don't know. I I, I don't really know the answer to that question. The people who make up the schedules and the budgets are to some extent in the dark about what the director does. It's it's kind of a mystery to a lot of people. It's like a baseball manager. You get the right personnel playing the right positions, cooperating and following a single leader, and that's it. That's what it's all about. But people don't seem to want to be satisfied with that. So there's a complexity about it all. And I'm rambling and tell me the question again. No, no, no. <laughs> I didn't know if you were feeling any heat about money. Uh, you were talking about people breaking. Here's, here's, a, here's a direct question. This great shot of, of, uh, of Susan and Jean and you with your cigar. And Bob Justman is on this side. He was actually your assistant director for this. He wound up being the great budget, uh, production uh, producer, undervalued, but his role in Star Trek what it became is legendary. Yeah, but he right. was really good about breaking scripts down and doing budgets. And, yes. And nope, you got to cut that. This is $50 over our budget right now. We have to, you know, I mean, I don't know if he was playing that role on the pilot, but what you worked with him as an AD, do you have good me memories of uh, working with Bob? Really a knowledgeable, supportive, good guy. Down here. With, uh, with, uh, um, with whom I had to get tougher on a couple instances because he was, he was thinking money and, I'm not, I'm not worried in your behalf. I'm not worried about money. I'm worried about clarity, conviction, drama, and all of that stuff comes first. So when somebody tells me a problem in their budget, I just figure instantly that's your problem. You didn't, you didn't mind read me accurately enough. It's your job to mind read me. Uh, <laughs> Again, that's unreasonable and patrician, but uh, hey, I'm here, you're here, that's what, it, that's what it's about. Well, let's, let's head back into some of the casting, if not actual casting, then just working with them through the show. So, Majel, as number one, um, what was your memory working with that, and were you, I know you're trying to be clarified and, and honest with the, with the end product and the audience. But being in the group of people working, did you know that this was Jean's girlfriend on the side? It was the thing. I mean, did any of that enter into that? Or I, how are you with working with her as an actress in the performance? I, I can't remember what I knew at the time. Because at the time, again, directorially, you go home and go to bed at 8.15 because you've got a big day the next day. You don't care what the stunt puppies and their friends are doing in the bars and... And for years after these shows, you hear intriguing stories about what the hell was going on while you're sleeping, getting ready for the next day. <laughs> so I don't... Somebody's got to be the sane head in the room. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you've got to outlive and outlast and outperform and out, out, out 
everybody on that set. If the leader falls, I mean, you've been there. When the, when, when the leader falls, man, you are in trouble. And that's what we are paid to prevent. Uh, Majel was a good professional lady. Uh, retrospectively, I would have had her simplify the performance a little bit. She was written to be the strong woman on the bridge of men. She was playing the strong woman. With the experience I now have, I wonder if it would have been interesting to have her play just the woman. Take for granted that my orders will be followed. Take for granted that people will listen to what I have to say because of my rating, my ranking. Take for granted the fact that I deserve the job I have. That might have been more interesting because Majel did, did play not the feminist, the object of feminism maybe. I, I, I'm at a loss for descriptions, but she was, her professionalism was a little strong. If her professionalism had been a little more mild, a little more, a little more toward those first three days of rehearsal, it might have been, might have been better. That's retrospective. Yeah. Um, Thank you. There we go. We would be remiss without mentioning this gentleman. What was your uh, first? Because uh, he was cast before you yes, came in. Yes. So Leonard Nimoy, what was your memory of meeting him, of uh, working with him? As because you were there the first. I mean, I, one of the ways I love to introduce you is the man who first got to say speed marker action on Star Trek <laughs> yeah. was you. Yeah, true. Uh, for all these hundreds of hours coming later and all the directors and all the creatives that followed. But your first memory of working with those rehearsals, where was he in his process of creating Spock? Because we have a rough Spock in this pilot. It's not refined until a little further down the road. But what was your re- memory of uh, working with him in those days? I knew him to be a well-respected actor. In the, among the actors, there's, there's one of the laminations, maybe more, but one of them certainly, where the professionals, the professionals, the, the economists, the simpler, more effective performers live and work, and that's where he came from. He was one of the special, simple, effective actors. Uh, as we met, I found him to be Professional, impersonal, uh, really, ter- really terrific, and he he paid me a great compliment in in an article I saw since. He said the director told me to be a scientist. Don't be a human being. Don't be emotional. Don't take sides. Don't be judgmental. Be a scientist. Oh, somebody died. Oh, oh, somebody got married. Oh. Be a specialist, an, an expert in statistics, impersonal and distant, and overview, uh, 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 over, w- with an overview. And uh, he didn't say all of that, thank God. <laughs> but but uh, he did give me credit, credit for that, uh, that scientific imp- Impersonal, being impersonal, and uh, 
I think we were right, he in his praise and me in my direction, which I had given many, many times since. When one wants to take emotion out of a scene, you don't say be less emotional. You don't say be less emotional. That's hard to that's hard to factor. Whereas if you say if you say be, I'm losing it. I don't know what you say. Scientist for his case. Yeah. Be a, yeah. That role is. Yeah. Give them the objective. Be the scientist. That's right. Don't play a negative. Be less something. You get the idea. Next. Be the positive. <laughs> well, I would be also be remiss if we didn't mention what it was like to work with. This, this is your first science fiction. That we, the Telosians, not Laotians. <laughs> but the Telosians and that whole idea of having, like, playing aliens and making how, how they play. You know, you had Gene's script. But working with them, the, the ballet ladies, the shorter women, dubbing men's voices in later, all of that. But what was that? How, how, you know, was it just they were just elements in the story and you just used them and plowed ahead? Or do you have any, any special memories of how will this work or wondering about? I, I think what I was doing is not simply relegating them to the role of villains. I think I probably was thinking something along the lines of them being desperate, them, them wanting to reform, regenerate their, their reality, their own personalities, their own lives. Uh, so they're apart. They're apart and desperate. And since they're superior, uh, simpler. Ah, okay, simpler. That makes sense. Just play the words. I had seen the ma- I had seen the main lady play Death of a Salesman once upon a time on a stage, and she's a terrific actress. And with those kind of people, you just give them a little hint of something, and they run with it. And uh, so, somewhere around simplicity, desperate, foreign, different, is the answer to the question. Mm. This is me figuring it out later, figuring out how to articulate it later, but it's something in that neighborhood. We thought the veins in the head were kind of brilliant, and now I, now I think they're, they're okay, but they, I don't think they're brilliant, really. <laughs> well, that's hindsight, but there, it's, it's very uh, key. I'm gonna, we do have a microphone. I want to ha- give us a few minutes for Q&A. If anybody wants to jump on the mic and go ahead and get in line, I want to ask you one more thing. This is an iconic picture. You did have a little location shooting. It was down at 40 acres at the Desert Lot for the Kalar, the, the castle, the Rigel 7 yeah. uh, set left over. So if you have a memory of the location set, she's in her damsel in distress outfit. There's a famous picture, not so much of you all shooting, but it's the day that they brought over the small filming model. And this is a famous shot of Jeff Hunter and Gene looking at it. Um, yeah, thank you, Spock boy. Um, <laughs> But you were on location shooting that old fortune. Did you happen to turn around and notice uh, them when when it arrived and there was a little hubbub? Or were you like in the shooting, or do you have a memory of this moment, or or just the location shoot in general? I, I have no memory of that moment. That would be that would be outside of my interest and my responsibility of delivering that story to you. So I would walk away from this scene because it's it's about promotion, which is great. It's about 
design, which is great, but I've got a shot to make. No, later, whatever. Okay. Just uh, the, um, those sets were budgety. Remember, I was green enough so I didn't see to every adjective and every comma, so I didn't check those sets to the extent that I should have, or maybe at all. Uh, now they look a little budgety to me, so somebody kept me out of that meeting <laughs> where, where we're going to reinvent a world where a, where a monstrous person comes out and threatens our hero and our heroine. That was a little... That escaped my attention, frankly. Right. And, and it looks a little budgety. Well, let's, let's try to get... I'm going to... While we do questions, I'm going to pop this one up. This was an amazing picture that you, you sent over when we had you on Portal 47. And it's just... It's the cage set, and you're on the planet set. And uh, it's pretty uh, amazing. Are you in there? Is that... You? That's not you behind the camera directly. Is that the DP? Where, where are you in here? Do you know? I think I've... you know where I don't know where I am. I think I am in there somewhere. I think I've done this drill before and found okay. myself. You're taking but... the picture. That's what you're... No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, I thought I'd leave that up there while but, we're talking. But that's, that's impressive. That looks like mass confusion and power and force and industry and all the rest of it. Don't be fooled. We're telling a story, folks. We're, we're doing a moment that is... For you, for you to read properly, we're rigging, well, whatever, the stuff I've said. That doesn't have anything to do with anything except, I, I don't know, expense, uh, expenditure, whatever. Yeah. I'm not impressed. I'm too busy doing the real job, you know. And, and real quick before we – let's try to get some of these in just to let everybody know. Um, if you want to keep up with my Trekland things happening on, you can text Trekland. This is a new thing. I'm so excited. It's almost like a real business. Uh, Trekland to 33777. You can get the hour-and-a-half interview I did with Bob. You get a, you get a link to get the uh, interview we did in 2016 of Portal 47, which has slides and us talking, and we'll have some different stories from here, and a free month of my Portal 47. And if you come over to the, to, the, to the meetup, I've got some deals from this whole Comic-Con weekend. But let's get back to that picture, and let's have some squeeze in. We've got about uh, a little over five, six minutes for questions. Let's try to make them brief, and let's see what we can get to. Thank you very much for coming out. Uh, my question is, uh, Star Trek is known for all of its firsts. Obviously, two pilots being commissioned is unheard of, especially during that time. What did it feel like when they got to reuse your pilot for the menagerie, and uh, did you feel vindicated? I missed the key part, the menagerie. Well, they went to another pilot, didn't use you yours to sell, but they went on, and then they did reuse the cage for the menagerie. So yes. did you feel, he said, did you feel vindicated when they used so much of it for that two-parter? Not really. The, the, the question, the question p kind of presumes that I was a little wounded or something. I really, really wasn't, because that's the name of the game. Some sell and some don't, and on I went. Gene offered me that second pilot. I turned him down just because I'd been there. I didn't want to do it again. What I want to do is what I haven't done. So, no, no, there was no vindication or anything like that. The surprise was... That material is 55 years ago. I mean, Gene had something beyond my superior knowledge, 
that connects with you folks that is still working, which is great of him and of you and whatever link that is that's outside my understanding. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. It's a great honor to be in your presence, both of you. Okay. Um, It's kind of ironic that this gentleman basically said the question that I had. (laughs) I just wanted to uh, add in, um, did you feel like the cage was properly folded into the menagerie that resulted? I mean, there was overlap. Yeah. She's saying, were you happy with the way they treated the material when they folded it into the menagerie? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think I've ever seen that two-hour show. Oh, oh you have to. A, a friend of a friend of mine. He's a busy guy. He has places to do, pilots to direct. I'll be there. I'll be there. Okay. A friend. A friend of mine directed that pilot, and. Uh, there were, I think we split, there was some residual problem, and we just flipped a coin and split the money. I mean, I mean it, it's it's le- it's less mysterious, or maybe more than either of us realize. It's kind of dumb-headed, simple. I don't know. It was just a job in the day. You didn't know. Fifty-three years later, you'd be. Yeah. Fifty-five years later, we'd be talking. Fifty-five a years. House. Oh, yes. A packed house. Who's. <laughs> There you go. Go ahead. Uh, yes, Gene Roddenberry once described Star Trek as wagon train to the stars. Did he ever impart that philosophy to you during the making of the pilot? That's familiar to, to me, but not very. So I, I think the answer is yes, but, but don't listen to the producer. He's liable to louse you up. I mean, I mean I'll keep that in mind first of all. <laughs> Did you do any Western pilots or any Western major Western show? Gunsmoke or Bonanza back I in the day? Or? I certainly worked on Gunsmoke some and Bonanza some. I, know. I mean, I know this is all. I don't think people. any pilots. Yeah, yeah. Uns- okay. Unsold pilots, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. This is a really specific question. You may or may not remember, but there is a shot in the cage where it is, it's in the opening scene where Spock points to the console to change the map. Oh, yes. He doesn't press a button. He points to this console. Was that scripted, or did you come up with that, or did Leonard Nimoy come up with like that? He waves his hand. He points and kind of waves. Yeah, he sort of yes. goes yes. like this. I think that was his. I think that was his... Nimoy? That was his interpretation of the character's body and physical movements, and yeah, I, I don't think... I think I was surprised when he, when he did that. Oh. Well, that may have come from the script. He may, he gestures. The script might have said he gestures to the screen. I don't remember, but I think I give it largely to Leonard. Really, your point was it was trying to say that they had like point and not click. Like he didn't have to hit buttons constantly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So it was kind of a, a Leonard thing then. Yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's written in the script that way. But go ahead. We got this is our last question. Sorry. I know. I know. I'm sorry. She just. When those room people throw the signs up, we... Okay. Hello. Come down with us, and we'll, I'm sure we can get to if you can. Yes, go ahead. Um, uh, it's kind of more personal question. 
dur- back when you were filming the pilot and looking at how Star Trek was creating this universe of technological advancement and far beyond anything that you had, based in things that te- technology that existed, but still much beyond that, did you ever believe that any of that technology would actually come to fruition? Like, communicators would become a real thing. I don't think... I think the answer is no, I didn't care. I wasn't interested. (laughs) Get the job done? I think think that the scene was yet to be finished, so we'll talk later and I'll finish the scene. I don't think so. Um, Connected... uh, Connected thought comes to mind, and that is Valcro. Prior to Star Trek, Valcro did not exist. It was brought to those costumes by that costumer, and... Uh, Bill Tice. Yeah, and, Tice. and the rest is history, and your, your brilliant director thought, well, that's an idea that, that'll die in a week or so. <laughs> so so uh, that's, that's all I remember. Valcro is your answer. <laughs> There you go. Well, we're going we're gonna to wrap. Let me, ask you, let me ask you one last yes or no question. Have you seen Discovery's reuse of Pike and Spock and Number One and the Telosians and Vena and all that? Have you seen any of those episodes? A bit of, a bit of the show I have seen, and it looks to be really well done and into some new trickery that's going to result. Like, are we going to see? Are we going to see a character exist in two realities, namely now and fifty years ago? When he, there's an interesting thing going on there about the, about the platonic, the platonic reality of drama, and so yes, a little bit, and I'm. Enthused about what I think they will decide and what that is, I don't know. All right. That's our end of our hour. Again, we're having a sign-up down here. You can come by. We need to give it up for this gentleman. Mr. Robert Butler. Thank you so much. Look at that. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.